Nakedly Examined Music needs your support. Please go to patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic and sign up for a small recurring contribution to keep the music flowing. And using Patreon's feed of this podcast will ensure you never have to hear any commercials ever. Thanks! Send the dogs at Jesus' feet to send the dogs at Jesus' feet to send the dogs at Jesus' feet to there's no presence, there's no presence in the future. You are listening to Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriters. My name is Mark Lintonmeyer. For more information about this podcast, please see nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. My guest for episode 103 is Homer Flynn, the designated interviewer for the anonymous band The Residents. The Residents formed in 1969 as an art collective in Louisiana. They moved to the California Bay Area. You're right now listening to the initial track, Fire, from their first release, the Santa Dog EP, 1972. Since then, they've released something close to 50 albums, always experimental, genre-defying, purposely weird. Today, we're going to be discussing good vibes from their most recent album, 2018's Intruders. Then we'll turn back to Blue Rosebuds, originally from the Duck Stab 1978 EP, and we'll also hear the 2014 live version released on an album called Shadowland and then Kiss of Flesh the climax from their 1988 God in Three Persons album we'll conclude by listening to If Only a brand new resident song recorded for the Hardy Fox tribute album The Godfather of Odd just released now as I said the residence is an anonymous band nobody knows who the members are except Hardy Fox revealed himself shortly before he passed away in October 2018 Homer Flynn who I'll be talking to here is the owner of the Cryptic Corporation that represents the residents. He's responsible for their graphic design, and he does all of their interviews. To learn more, please visit residents.com. So I will have played Fire, parentheses, Santa Dog, 1972, the first single, to show the origin of the band. We're going to get very quickly to something off the new album, Intruders, 2018. The song was Good Vibes. Do you want to say anything about the progression of the band from the beginning to here, or even just about this Intruders album by itself? The journey, I suppose, maybe in some ways it's not that different from anybody else that's done something for almost 50 years. It's a very meandering path that has been both glorious and torturous. But I suspect anybody that's done anything for that amount of time will have similar stories. The residents, the territory that they occupy is certainly unique, so that may make them a little different in some ways. As far as intruders, ultimately it had to do with the sort of beings, in some ways imaginary, in some ways real, in some ways in a land in between the two, that all inhabit each one of us in a very personal way. The perfect example to me was like the girlfriend or romantic partner that you had that maybe you were the one that wanted to break up with them. You broke up, and then they haunt you, haunt the cracks and crevices of your mind for like months, if not years after. And as much as you want to get rid of them, you really can't. Each of the Intruder songs is based on some sort of instance of that. Yeah, so they're kind of a bunch of thematically connected, but there's not like a single plot going over them. Should we say anything about good vibes in particular, or should we just give them the song in full and then talk about what it might possibly mean? Good vibes, I don't know that there's that much to say about it. I mean, to me, it comes from the place of a character who is, to me, obviously, very emotionally isolated. You know, he is fixated on a doppelganger that he feels like is just hanging out right outside of his window. 
And every time he looks out, this guy's there. And every time he looks out, the guy's lost a little more weight. Meanwhile, he has been losing weight in the process himself. And this has been very upsetting to him. I saw him again. I don't, I don't know if he saw me or not. Maybe, maybe he can't or won't or, or maybe I'm meaningless within the order of his existence. But he's always there. Standing outside the window, always in the same place. Everyone says they look just like you, but it's, it's not true. Close, sure, but but you see, I have a mole on my chin, and and he has none. Okay, all right, he's outside in the dark, but but they have to be some manifestation of a spirit world or or another dimension or or something, right? And if so. They would be perfect copies of our essence, right? Free from flaws and, and imperfections like scars and moles. But, but why is he there? Why? Why? die, at least not anytime soon, but, but that's what they say. If you see one, it means you're going to die. Okay, I have been losing weight, and it's happened since he appeared. It's just, it's just a few pounds, but now I'm getting scared to step on the scales. I know, it's weird.
weight loss thing is getting scary, but here's the weird part. He is losing weight too. It's 68 pounds now. I lost 68 pounds, but, but it, the wrath, it's almost like a human skeleton. And, and you better believe I'm eating like crazy, like, like a fucking fiend, for Christ's sake. I'm sitting here now eating a bacon cheeseburger with, with two patties, watching him right outside the window, like always. And it's like I can see him melting away. At, at this rate... He'll, he'll go long before me, but, but, you know what? I guess let's talk about it as a story first before we get into kind of the mechanics of how the story fits with the music and all that. You know, it sounds like it's just a crazy person, but then he's saying stuff like, like as if this is something that has been acknowledged by other people whether in legend or in specifics, like this is just in the alternate universe you're describing, something that just happens every once in a while and people see a doppelganger. I mean, wh- did you have any opinions on where this narrator is coming from? He sounds very eager to describe it's a strange emotional place. It's not merely being disturbed and haunted. Personally, I see him as being very emotionally isolated. He's obviously, as you say, eager to connect with other people about this. But then on the other hand, does he ever leave his house? We don't really know. But the whole thing of, they say, I know the residents did some research on the subject of doppelgangers, and a very famous one, historically, was Abraham Lincoln saw a doppelganger of himself in a mirror, as I understand it, not terribly long before he died. They say that if you see one, it means you're going to die. How many instances of that we can find, I have no idea. But the residents discovered that as they were researching it and found it quite fascinating. I know that's part of what they were working off of. Maybe we can kind of talk in general about how the, is the story written first? And then, you know, you try to come up with a soundscape or is it some kind of mixture of the two? Or do you even want to shed any light on that? It's fine if you want that to be a black box. From my observation, it was maybe a mixture of the two. I think they were, for the most part, writing music and writing lyrics separately. It's like they create a bunch of music and they create a bunch of lyrics once they have a kind of a theme, and then they start trying to fit things together. And that's usually a pretty fluid process. I think the words become malleable in terms of what it takes to make them work with the music, and the music will be malleable at times too. I mean, clearly if you're writing a coherent suite something that's supposed to be a story all the way through, then you you have to have some idea, maybe not of all the specific beats, but you know kind of what spots need to be fit in here with something that's more a a series of semi-connected vignettes here. Are there five other intruder songs that you know of on the cutting room floor in terms of the lyrics? Or does every idea, in order to get even realized enough to have a set of lyrics down, there's already musical ideas getting into it and it sort of develops as a whole thing? Well, there were... A few more. I'm not sure how many, two or three more maybe that didn't quite make it. In general, they kind of always do that. They always kind of overproduce so that they can select the stuff that they feel like fits together best. And it was not so much that those songs were bad. 
as much as they just didn't really seem to fit into the overall in the right way. At this point, at least in the production of these albums, would it be more grading those on how decent of stories are there? Or could it be that one of the stories is written, maybe you're not sure about it, but music gets meshed on it, actually gets produced to some extent, and then you say, you know, this whole thing isn't really working. Like, is that a thing that happens? That could happen, but they usually take things more or less to completion. It's a complicated process. They worked with Hardy Fox very closely in terms of final mixes. There'd be a lot of back and forth and whatever. And so it's like, obviously, Hardy is not there anymore. And so now they're working with Eric Feldman. They take things to the point of what they feel like is a, an advanced demo. Then there's a lot of back and forth with Eric in terms of taking it to the next level. And then Eric has a mixing partner that he works with that takes it to the ultimate kind of fine-tuned completion. I had the impression with Hardy that a lot of the instrumentals were even seemingly intended. Sometimes they were even presented in an alternate version of the album, say, as a strictly instrumental piece. That it was, here's something that is more or less complete, and here's a story that you could tell in isolation, but it'll be cooler if it's over this. That it was somewhat hands-off. But you're saying maybe that it's more complicated than that. Certainly, it seems like in this song, well, I don't know, I was trying to detect, like, are there particular beats in the story where something has to kick in. It's going to be much more obvious when we get to our third song that we're going to talk about today from the God in Three Persons, which that is just much more straightforwardly theatrical, like this is the climax of the story, and now the music has to swell. And But in this one, we have the introduction, we have this weird harmonics fading in, and the story starts, and it's pretty freeform. You don't have to stick tightly to a rhythm. You can have pretty coherent, full thoughts. Maybe I'm meaningless within the order of existence, that kind of stuff. And that at some point, pretty early on, about 23 seconds in, this kind of little dance beat starts. And then eventually we have the very residency. See, I have a mole on my chin, and, and he is not. Okay, all right, he's outside in the dark. but And there's no obvious cue in the lyrics that, like, that's when this should come in. You know, that he's entering into his elaboration of his delusion or whatever this is in a specific... Can you say a little about that? Should I be looking for? Okay, yes, that's the vocal cue for when the music thing should come in, or is it a little more free-flowing, the connection, than that? It's really more fluid than that. I do know that, in particular, with that song, there were a bit more lyrics that were written, and ultimately they decided that it was too much, and they went back and trimmed it back. For the residents, I mean, it's almost like, you know, they don't have a lot of rules, but one of their rules is that they like for the lines to be so far apart that it's very easy to read between. They like to give a lot of room. Usually, if things start to get too specific, they say, no, this is not right. Specifically, I can't remember exactly what more there was, there, but there definitely was more points in there that the guy was making to support his delusion. So I'm always fascinated by, to the extent that this is, theatrical music that you're kind of doing a little audio play here the extent to which the music is conventionally dramatic or more idiosyncratically resonant in other words like what mood is this supposed to connote so if you hear a like this basic theme like that seems just like a self-contained residence aesthetic like if you've heard a lot of residence songs i know hardy fox 
did not write this particular melody, but like it definitely comes from that DNA. And so I don't even know if you played that to somebody who didn't know any residents, if they would, what they would think of that. Like it's a little funky, you know, it's kind of going from a minor key to the major key. So it's kind of not sure if this is major or minor, a little uncertainty there, but it's, there's no obvious like, this is how you should feel when you hear this. Whereas the part right after that, the chorus, the like, that's like, I wrote General Hospital, like, what will happen next time on General Like, it's a kind of a more traditional suspense theme. They would be perfect copies of our essence, right? Free from flaws and, and imperfections like scars and moles, but... I don't know, do you think about the relation of how much, as a somebody doing a little theatrical production, how obviously you're telling people how to feel through the music? Yeah, they are telling people how to feel is supposed to be evocative and evocative of probably more of mystery and uncertainty and anxiety than anything else. For the most part, their process is much more intuitive than it is intellectual. So they know what feeling and mood they're going for. And, you know, it's like they talk about with spaghetti, you know, you throw it at the wall to see what sticks. And that's kind of what they do. They keep trying certain things, and then eventually it'll go, aha, yes, that's it, that's it. I mean, sometimes they hit it right off the top. Other times there's a lot of trial and error, but it's much more intuitive than intellectual. Sure, but when one is you know, coming up with which synth sound to use or something, or kind of once you get the orchestra defined, then you can be intuitive and you can jam and you can, how should I make it swish up and down and, and stop thinking, but once you're dealing with technology, there's an obvious deliberateness that you have to take, even in just figuring out what sound is this sort of the hi hatty sort of sound that I'm using here? Am I doing sort of a timbali thing? What, you know, exactly what? They work a lot at times with samples. So once again, they'll just kind of stick samples in, go through a big long list of stuff. Oh, how's this? How's this? How's this? Sometimes that's not exactly right. And they'll go back and play it or they'll find somebody else to play it more what they want, but at least that's pointed them towards what they want to do. Sure, yeah. I was wondering about that. I mean, if the whole thing is synth, then like you could see how one person might put that together, even if other people are providing feedback. But when you've got like this nice guitar riff... Like, that's a strong melodic riff. Is that the kind of thing, as far as you understand, that the same process of coming up with the synth parts also comes up with that, but somebody says, okay, we'll get the guitar player to come in and do that. Or, or would that be the guitar player gets to have a pass and put whatever he wants in there, and you know maybe there's some back and forth about how it's going to work in the mix? It's different at different times. Quite often, they will have composed something like that with a sample in there, and particularly with a, a guitar part, you know, they'll put something in there and then the guitarist will come in and, and often do his own interpretation of that. But once again, it's a fluid process. Sometimes it may sound a whole lot like the original, different tonalities, whatever. Other times it may be something completely different. So what about this chorus that I guess it's, you know, we've set up these, what I just called general hospital chords. So we have usually a chorus, 
Maybe this is not the chorus. Maybe these names are meaningless in this kind of song, but... that only comes in once. Like it's like a transition part before this instrumental clock ticking Eskimo noise part or, you know, can you say anything about sort of structurally even why do that there? (laughs) Or is it just, it seemed like we needed to slow down the story and have a little singing. And once again, it's like, you know, they get to a point and they kind of go, well, something needs to happen here. I think those lyrics probably had already been written or they could have just been ad-libbed right on the spot. But once again, it's more like something needs to happen here and, hey, it might be cool to have a vocal come in, even if it just comes in the one time. And do you know with the harmonies there, I'll say in quotes, if that's more mechanical or if that's multiple vocal passes that are then mixed together? You know, there's some interesting straining between the notes and I could see it, it going either way. They sound, the backing vocals sound mechanical enough that it could have just been, let's add the harmonizer yeah, you know, honestly, in terms of that one, I don't really know. Uh, I know that mm-hmm. for the most part, they prefer overdubbing with multiple voices. But, you know, they use plenty of electronics, and they're certainly not averse to that. There's been some creative use of pitch correction over the years in terms of, like, let's have the singer, I'm thinking of something on Animal Lover in particular, of just a melody that sounds totally created out of using the pitch correction software to just say, this is going to be a B, you know, not that the singer actually sang it like, so, which is just used in a more subtle way in music all the time, but like using it whole hog to create a melody like that out of a keyboard part, I thought was, was great. There's definitely a lot of vocal effects on this song. We've got a lot of delays. We've got a lot of fun stereo echoing just to help build the wall of sound. It's one of the residents' primary values is keep it interesting. They love to entertain the ear. One of the ways they do that is by introducing new and hopefully unexpected elements. Uh, I really like this point where the sort of the clock ticking enters. It's right after the chorus there. So we've just returned to what I was calling that very residency, timbali-laden main riff. But this new sound that I was thinking of is the clock ticking away the moments of this guy's life. You know, that's it's very present throughout the rest of the song starting here. And then we have a, kind of a, a reprise of what I, I wrote Eskimo noises, right? As in the, the album Eskimo, these ooh-ooh-ooh-oohs, but they're not quite in rhythm with the rest of it. Like it's a little faster. And so it, it kind of just messes with you. I don't know if I have a question related to that. <laughs> yeah, honestly, I wouldn't necessarily know how to answer it anyway. As I said before, their process is very intuitive and fluid. And it's like it's clay or something. They keep molding it until it's like, yeah, that's what we want. Before we go on to the second song, I want to stop and talk about a sponsor for this episode, Masterclass. Masterclass is an app. It's accessible on your phone, the web, Apple TV. It offers classes on a wide variety of topics taught by world-class masters at the top of their fields. Each class is broken out into individual video lessons and downloadable materials, all of which users can explore at their own pace. 
Now, you can buy these classes individually, but the all-access pass membership charged annually gives you unlimited access to over 60 classes, 200 hours of lessons taught by the world's best. Learn cooking from Gordon Ramsay, screenwriting from Aaron Sorkin, photography from Annie Leibovitz, tennis from Serena Williams, magic from Penn & Teller, etc., etc. I was very excited about the ones by Judd Apatow and Steve Martin and Neil Gaiman. But of course, my primary interest is in the music ones. You can learn guitar from Tom Morello or Carlos Santana, singing from Christina Aguilera, film scoring from Hans Zimmer, country and classical music from Reba McIntyre and Itzhak Perlman, producing and beat making from Timbaland, but I've spent the most time this week with Herbie Hancock Teaches Jazz. I've gotten through about a third of the class so far, kind of skipping around in it. And first of all, he's just a truly wonderful, talented, wise individual. And some of what you'd be seeing here is kind of what you'd be hearing on Nakedly Examined Music. Herbie talking about his philosophy of improvisation, about relating to music, not just as a musician analyzing the technical aspects, but as a human being. So it goes from the very general to the very specific where he's playing through specific pieces, and you get the music to these pieces as part of the downloadable material, and pointing out specific things he's doing technique-wise. So it works if you're using it for music appreciation, or if you're already a piano player or jazz player of some sort. It's kind of like getting a few lessons from him. Now, you don't have to take my word for it. You can watch samples of these courses free on the web, and then mosey over to masterclass.com examined, and you can get $30 off your first year of all access passed. That's masterclass.com slash examined for unlimited access to masterclass at $30 off masterclass.com slash examined. If you enjoy Nakedly Examined Music, I encourage you to check out my other entertainment-related podcast, Pretty Much Pop, a culture podcast, where we talk about TV, film, comedy, and there will be music episodes. We deal with questions like the difference between high and low culture, whether we should, as adults, be playing video games or watching cartoons or engaging in various other guilty pleasures. I got a wonderful couple of co-hosts, and we're sometimes joined by guests like the amazing Lucy Lawless, the very funny Yakov Smirnoff, PhD. So please give it a shot. Check it out at prettymuchpop.com. All right, let's get back to the discussion. Let's see if we can get a little more light on the whole way of thinking about songwriting by going very far back in time to Blue Rosebuds. The original version I want us to hear first from Duck Stab, 1978, featuring Snakefinger, Philip Lipman doing some of the guitar work here. Do you want to say a little about where the residents were at at this point before we play that song in full? To be honest, the residents have always been a little bit shocked by the longevity and continuing interest in <laughs> Duckstab. For them, it was really an in-between project. They were working on Eskimo at that time, which was their big project, and they were struggling with that. It took them four years to do Eskimo, and the majority of it came within the last six months. It got to a point where, okay, they've been working on this for a couple of years. Partly they needed to break from it. Partly Ralph was... Records were saying, we need some product. Essentially, they put the original Duck Stab EP together, which came out. You know, it was one of those things that was the right product for the right time. As I remember, you know, it was a seven-inch EP coming out from Ralph Records that nobody knew anything about in San Francisco. And 20,000 of those things flew out the door practically overnight. And ultimately, Ralph made the decision six months or a year later, I don't remember exactly, that, okay, this is all well and good, but we would like for this to have an extended life in the marketplace and a seven-inch EP is not going to do that. 
So at that point, they convinced the residents to do what at that time was the second EP's worth, which was called Buster and Glenn. The whole idea was to do something similar as, you know, side one, side two of a traditional LP. When that was first released, I think in maybe 78, something like that, it was called Duck Stab, Buster and Glenn. And it had two covers. You had the Duck Stab cover and you had the Buster and Glenn cover. And that was a way of marketing it in a more valid way than, you know, a seven-inch EP. But at the same time, it was confusing to people. What does this mean? Duck Stab, Buster and Glenn. And so then the decision was made a few years later just to fold it all together and call it Duck Stab, which is the way it has existed ever since. So regarding Blue Rosebuds in particular, it seems like these songs were not particularly, the way you're describing it at least, it doesn't seem like Residence is the first band to be you know, working on my artsy project and then I kind of throw out some pop songs pretty quick, <laughs> relatively pop songs, and people like those way better. <laughs> like, oh well. So Blue Rosebuds in particular, I mean, just, I was thinking these lyrics must have been taken from some 1940s, I love you and because I do, my skies have turned from gray to blue, that there must be some source material, but I only ever found on the web, at least, like a reference to this song. But they're definitely, you know, playing on some trope of the traditional love song. They are. I mean, basically, the whole idea is that they're setting this up as an overly simplistic love song and then stomping all over that. And ultimately, that's exactly the intention. It's kind of a bait and switch kind of a thing. Just a 
on as a traditional love song this instrumental opening is exactly what i meant by i don't know what the mood is supposed to be other than this is one of the, the introductory things i would play to somebody who's never heard resonance before just to kind of blow your mind that like it's sort of eerie it's self-contained it's it's actually pretty in a way you know that it resolves in this almost medieval this like that's kind of a cadence sort of do you have any comment on kind of musically what this is like is this pointing at some i know your residents were fans of zappa and things like this but you don't hear anything like this in zappa's oeuvre is there contemporary electronic you know late 20th century stuff that this is tonally pointing at or do you have any idea honestly i'm pretty much clueless once again i was more on the ralph records side of things at that time nobody feels that comfortable pressuring an artiste, but at the same time, we needed product. They said, okay, we'll just go in the studio and do something. And ultimately, this is what came out. I didn't realize until I just saw on the web that Snakefinger was involved in this. But is that slimy, I thought it was a high fluttering synth, this, or is that Snakefinger's guitar with a bunch of effect on it? Do you have any idea? Because there's some obvious, like that is guitar. But that's not like a really skilled guitarist like Snakefinger doing his thing, that echoing. I think that was Snakefinger. Okay. With some kind of effect. Yeah, just unearthly. Like, it could be played with violin bow as far as I know, right? You know, there's a interesting transition here when you finish the second... So we've had throughout the song, one of the instruments has been this twanging thing. You know, it sounds like it could be a mouth harp or something that just is doing answering. It's acting like a percussion instrument. It only has one pitch. And finally here, it's opening up and doing a nice arpeggio. So it's almost like we're entering the rock and roll section. Like the drums are now going straight. We're not doing a little medieval resolving, stopping thing. As we're getting into the bridge here, this is almost like rock in that there's at least a 4-4 drum beat. I don't even know, mood-wise, it's suggesting rock, but it doesn't make you rock. I feel it's like it's almost respecting the audience in a certain way. That like You're not telling them how to feel. When you go out and, and have a big rock song, like you're telling them, get pumped up. Here it's more like, I invite you to observe this thing that is going on. I think that statement is fairly indicative of the, what the residents <laughs> are all about, in a way. They're constantly inviting their audience to come in and see what's happening here and then make up your own mind what it's all about. Yeah, that we get to this dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun. You know, I think of, like, the fake 
Indian. It doesn't seem like a coincidence that Eskimo was going on at the same time. They were playing with these, I don't want to say indigenous rhythms or something, because it's more like what kids grow up thinking are indigenous rhythms in terms of like that this becomes. And then the fact that this is the underlying part for, it only became later clear to me that there was a singing resident who was doing all these silly voices. I assumed it was all four band members or however many band members kind of chiming in. But you can hear at least, it sounds like it's probably the same voice, but it's a character part. I mean, do you want to say anything about where this lady character who is, I guess, answering the love struck fool is coming from? This particular tone of makes you wonder why he's so enamored with this person. It does make you wonder for sure. But I think the reality is that More than anything else, it points out the fact that he's living in his own dream world. You know, she's not part of that dream world. It's like, you know, whoever he sees her as is a projection. And she's kind of letting him know that, you know, hey, I'm not your dream babe. You're you're barking up the wrong tree, I think is the expression. You know, I thought where you're going with that is that this is an exaggerated character that would be like, actually part of the dream, but the part of the dream that's your subconscious telling you that you're full of crap. Because obviously no human being is going to, even if a woman is smacking down a man for his unwanted affection, is not going to say, malignant with the misconception that a grunt can gleam, your lichen-covered corpuscles are filthy to my fist. You know, these kind of, some of the best lines in residence history, or at least the most quoted, <laughs> infection is your finest flower mildewed in the mist. Any thought about kind of what the poetic influences are here, or is it Dr. Seuss? (laughs) I think they had a lot of lyrics that they had written at that point. And so when it came time to put this thing together, it becomes like a puzzle. We'll look in this box and see what we have here. I think they really liked that lyric. And so the other part, the kind of like pseudo love song stuff, I think was probably more written as a setup for the second part. But I think the first part already existed and they liked it. And so they're trying to figure out how to make that work in a song. Well, then it's great how when it comes back, the singer is clearly not being as confident about it. And I I want to point this out because we're going to hear the uh, more recent live version of it soon, where this idea sort of goes out the window that you've got, I won't say a confident delivery, but a some sort of sing-song delivery. And then you've got the bridge that is blistering, smacking the original singer down. And then we repeat the lyrics verbatim after that. But it's just more, now I don't, I'm not so sure of myself. <laughs> you know, the manhood reduced by more than half. There's certainly a sense of vulnerability that comes out when the singer comes back. But my sense was that for the more recent version there was actually some anger in there, too. It was not approached more from the point of view of vulnerability, but more pissed off.
different sound palette they're both exactly the same length they're both three minutes 10 seconds was that mere coincidence or was there like let's take the old recording and when we're programming the new parts do them as overdubs until the other stuff is gone and then use that as the basis for the live performance honestly i think it's more coincidence than anything else i don't know that they were setting out to make them exactly i wouldn't even aware that they were the same honestly. <laughs> you were just making the point that the tone since it's one singer on stage Still could have done some kind of a <laughs> cartoon lady voice, but instead, like, no, let's do it more like a thrash metal song. Just put some distortion on the vocal that this is the hard stuff, which makes, of course, those wonderful lyrics a little harder to hear. One would presume that the audience is familiar with this song. Although, again, it's so changed that I think, I don't know if when I just listened to this live album straight through, if I even registered right away that this was the same song. <laughs> Like they're so different. It's like you know when Bob Dylan revives a new plays like a Rolling Stone. Now it's like you have you're a minute into the song before you have any idea what it is. Yeah, they love to do that. For one thing, they get bored doing it the same way over and over again. But also, too, I don't even know how much they're capable of going back and recreating. It's much more interesting to them to you know approach it fresh. Well, I was at least thinking the lyrics are consistent. The melody is not necessarily consistent. The rhythm of the lyrics is the same. You know, certainly we don't have any attempt to recreate that snake finger guitar thing. And that's, you know, you have different guitar player. It's a different setup. I would kind of think that the guitar player would have in mind how the original riff sounded. You know, I hear some of the same notes, but it almost sounds, the guitar line sounds more like beat it.
So I was picturing the, you know, that's a counter melody to that. Obviously, that's not a quote from that, but it's very distinctive. It's a good riff, but it's not at all the same riff. It's like, this is basically a different song. Once again, they, they love to go back and reinvent these things, and they do it kind of over and over again. Yeah, and then you were saying that the vocals are just much more angry throughout, and especially as it goes on, and I kind of compared that to the whole album of Elvis covers that was done that were often expressing some sorrow, expressing some passion, but doing so in a really over-the-top, angry way, like reacting to vulnerability with rage, basically. I think they were just looking for new ways to interpret the song, and ultimately that seemed like, well, yeah, that's obvious. That's certainly a possibility. Clarify for me. So Hardy was still involved in the arrangement of these Shadowland backing tracks, even if he wasn't on all the tour? The point of Hardy's departure at this point was several years ago. It was pretty fuzzy. He certainly did a lot of arrangements for their live shows. But at what point he completely dropped out? I remember the last time he was on tour with the group was when they played at South by Southwest for the premiere of Theory of Obscurity. It was a very defined line at that point. But it gets really fuzzy after that to exactly which arrangements were his and which ones were maybe started out as his and then they changed them or which ones he had nothing to do with. I'm I'm really not sure. Yeah, I mean, the only reason I would bring it up is just because he's just got the residence music is just so, I would say, inimitable. But obviously, to continue making residence music after (laughs) in his absence and not make it sound like just a different band, then there has to be some connection in terms of hearing harmonies that way and hearing rhythms that way and hearing arrangements in a way that is at least related. Has that been a struggle? Or was it that, from what I read, that the people that you were playing live with after that point and that you're still playing live with recently were still people who had been in the orbit for a long time. So it's not like it was... Hardy decides one day, as you said, I'm done, and then you have to go find new people from scratch. Like, no, these are people that were already understood the internal workings of the music and had participated in that in some way before they had to have an original arrangement that was not Hardy involved at all. Often in these kinds of interviews, you know, I will describe the residents as more of a, a spirit than a band. It's an attitude, it's a, it's a sense of aesthetics that is carried forward and the people that work with the residents seem to get it. That's what allows it to keep moving forward with a sense of continuity. And that was very much on display in the recent I Am A Resident album, which is just, you know, if you look on Spotify, it just says by residents. It doesn't say residents tribute album, but that was kind of the whole point of it is that people sent in tribute tracks that were then the residents remixed, made into a pastiche. There's obvious residence vocals on it and part of it. So it's just to really blur the line of where the residents might stop, that it is not you know, a particular set of individuals. That's the ideology you're trying to get forward in doing that? Yeah, yes, I think that's a good way of looking at it. Part of the thing is that the residents, from their point of view, everybody is a resident. And they even said it to the point of view that everybody gets their mail. Part of their thing is, and especially with that project, is to enable the inner resident in everybody. And they believe that that inner resident is in everybody. Everybody is just not quite so bold as to inhabit that part of their character. Yeah, I like that. Well, let's turn to our the last main thing we were going to talk about here, which was Kiss of Flesh from God and Three Persons 1988. 
So this was a really a landmark in residence history as far as I was concerned. Actually, this is the first one I owned on CD. I know I'd heard some other things, but that I had in my possession and listened to over and over. And it was so different from Duck Stab and the other stuff that I think I had actually gone to the college radio station when I was working there a little bit and like taped them off their LPs because <laughs> – it was like this was my way of when I entered college of, of seeing there's a whole new world of music out there. Like the residence was like the thing that the college radio station guy was like, if you're cool, you know what this is. So I went to the record store and I picked up God in Three Persons, the first CD. And it was quite different because it was the first one, you know, we've already heard on this show here, Good Vibes, that has this storytelling character. And like I said, before God in Three Persons, it wasn't even clear to me that there was a single main resident singer. Like there's just so many different cartoon voices of different sorts kind of capturing different essences before this that when you actually get to hear and then the Elvis covers album shortly after that, it becomes just a much more defined sound. Do you want to say something sort of in general to this move to a, let's call it a theater piece that is based on computer programmed sound layering, then took a very strong part in the next few albums that were made for CD-ROMs and things, and then having sort of a separate narrative that went over that. What you're saying is that God and Three Persons represented a turning point. It wasn't so much that they moved towards narrative at that point, because from their point of view, the songs always had narratives. Every, every character had a narrative. And quite often, we would only get a very small window into that character's narrative. But with God in Three Persons, I think what happened was that they made a conscious decision to start clarifying the narratives. That makes sense. And that has more continued, more or less. I mean, once again, you can look at intruders and, you know, you can say, okay, they made two or three steps backwards at that point in terms of clarifying the narratives. They're very vague and they're very fuzzy. And that's really what they wanted for Dumble. But in general, their narratives have become more defined. Which seems like it would make the band more accessible in general. That like you might quite not understand the tonal language being used in the music. Although I'll say, God and Three Persons also just made a jump. This The whole thing is nine minutes and 40 seconds. So I want to make sure that we've described what people are hearing before we just throw it out there and expect them to stick around <laughs> to the end of it. I think you had told me earlier on that this song has a couple quotes in it. So the main... God and Three Persons theme. Which is outlined in the very first song of the album, which is not what we're hearing. We're going to hear basically the climax of the album. It's the second to last song on the whole album. But that that is pulled from, what is the source on there? Uh, Double Shot of My Baby's Love by the Swinging Medallions, which was a, I think, a 1960s party song at fraternities in the South. And then we have people should listen for a place where that sort of fights with the hymn, Holy, 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 God in three persons, blessed Trinity. You know, so we actually get the, the title for the whole suite from that. Yeah. Anything else sort of preparatory before we just throw them in the deep end here? I guess the reason that we've marked this episode as explicit, I'll say that much. Yeah. The residents are all from the South, sort of from a wasp culture. And God in Three Persons, Holy, 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 I don't know how much exposure that has ever had outside of Protestant religious culture. I don't even know. I don't know if it's originally from Europe or if it's originally from the South or whatever, but they certainly grew up with that. As the story of God in Three Persons, which is all about a 
very strange, shall we say, romantic triangle between a, a pair of Siamese twin faith healers and their manager. As that story evolved, somehow got the theme of Holy Holy seemed very appropriate to them. And they really liked the whole idea of contrasting the juxtaposition of the profane against the religious in a way. That was, I think, a very fascinating idea for them. And in a lot of ways, that still is a fascinating idea. You know, the juxtaposition of the profane against the sacred. And I guess just so people can understand the story a little bit, these are Siamese twins of opposite sexes. So it's biologically impossible. That's not the way fraternal twins are made of the single thing splitting. But that's the conceit here. And so this manager who has been increasingly flirtatious inappropriately with them, strangely is concerned not with, is it clear what the ages of these twins are? Teen of some sort? Or is that? We know that they're young. They're like teen, maybe early 20s at the most. But they're not really opposite sex as much as they are both very gender fluid. His perception of them is that they switch. There's one of them in particular, as he said, there's one of them when she was she, that when he perceives that twin as a she and he interacts with that one, he feels a very strong romantic compulsion in that direction. Then he feels like, is being reinforced on the other side. And the erogenous zone is the place where they are connected. (laughs) It's not sort of where one would expect, which also, you know, is the place that does the faith healing and, you know, is important in other ways, I guess, in the story. Right, exactly. They are joined at the shoulders. And so their union, uh, the holy union, supposedly they have the power to heal people. And the source of their power is the holy union. All right, I think we set it up. Let's go. seated side by side upon their special stool. So I said when they were finished with their whole wheat toast and spinach, we should go back to the secret room that had been constructed recently to be conductive to the force that grew around the twins. Once inside, we all admired its silver gleaming pointed spire that rose into the center of the room. 
up and up towards the ceiling, gracefully it stretched, not yielding to the confines of the smallish room. For it pierced an open circle and vanished deep into the murky night that held its crown somewhere above. The room had been an inspiration to the twins that I had taken, building it of wood and tile and chrome, and they would sit inside for hours while the rain dripped down the tower, sitting on a bench around its base. But this time, this time we were not there for inspiration, but to bear our other sides and feel the gifts of flesh. Close off, I commanded, like a bold and common bandit basking in a feeling of control. I was standing back behind them with a length of line to time once their nakedness had been revealed. Kneel, I said, becoming heated, for the task had been completed. And I felt my goal was drawing near. <laughs> then I heard a little snicker. What was that, I said, and quickly giggled, spread infection in the room. Stop it, stop it, stop, I said. But it seemed to spread and spread. Stop it, or, or I won't show you anymore. I can't believe that you're so dumb to think we needed anyone to show us what we've known about what? for years. I, I screamed in disbelief, so certain that I was a thief that took away their purity. I said, but, but what about the other night when she and I were locked so tight and... 
so I stopped. What makes you think it was her? The mocking voices said with words that sliced me open fast and quick. <laughs> but I, but I know it must have been because I smelled her heated skin and. Don't you see there is no she now? Don't you see there is no she now? Don't you see there is no she now? Don't you see there is no she? I saw there was no sheep, but there was only them and me, and they were laughing in my face too loud. So I reached into my pocket, and I'm feeling like a shock. It's booted from my fingertips. I lost my limbs and up my butt and focused just below my guts and made me hold my breath before the blade. The fall and last and free me from the anger and the screaming endlessly exploding in my so head. So I slit the holy union, turning it into a wound that gave the part and bled upon the ground. Causing me to fire my passion as I stared into the gash that quivered like a bird and ripped so out. So great upon my throbbing penis was the pull toward this penis. Yet there was no thought of it at all. Only all-consuming lust of being flamed and base disgust and smile about it while I came inside. So I slipped my dick into it, thrusting into pain and spewing blood around the room. I so I fucked that much harder fast, I pushed apart the shoulders that were down below my waist, were slicing up the air as eyes rolled up and teeth were bared, my lips stretched too tight and tried to tear, to the sick distorted fusion, so it came and so did I, madly with my face contorted, I convulsed and shoved apart the shoulders that I recollect hard and I, a rip, a ripping, sickening sound of flesh splitting as I, and drifted towards and just before I, a big, I hit the floor, a big black hole. I noticed. I noticed one was rolling over, showing me a a smooth, a smooth unblemished thigh that, that ended in a red eruption just just below her belly button. But 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 maybe but maybe it was only in my mind. But maybe it was only in my mind. So this is much more so than good vibes, a straightforwardly theatrical piece. You actually, I think you were telling me, this actually had a theatrical performance, 2016 or so? Yeah. 
of everything that the residents have done, I think this is maybe the single piece, maybe with the exception of Eskimo, that they felt the most strongly about in terms of it could really work as a theatrical production of some kind. Ultimately, they've been waiting for 30 years for that to, to come to the other people to figure that out. They had made a connection with ACT, the American Conservatory Theater, which is a very long, well-established theater group in San Francisco. Ultimately, they did a reading of it, probably in the fall, September of 2016, have had continuing conversation with other people about developing this as a theater piece. And the most exciting thing right now is that they will be performing this at the Museum of Modern Art in New York late in January of 2020. They are extremely excited about that and are very curious to see where they can take it after that. I mean, they're still in conversations with ACT, but ACT, the management of ACT, the artistic director, has changed and turned over. Whether there's still an opening there for them with that or not, it's hard to say. But meanwhile, they're continuing to push forward, and it will be happening at the the MoMA, and they're pretty excited about that. Yes, I really like the Greek chorus Lori Amat singing harmony with herself that is throughout this album of we're almost over. The album's almost done. That talking directly to the audience that just makes it a piece of theater. Well, actually meta theater. Yeah. And um, Lori will be part of the performing group at the Museum of Modern Art. Excellent. I guess, would you want to say anything about the change in sound with this album? The synths were much more primitive, you know, so if you're doing drum machines, it's not going to sound like the new version of Blue Rosebuds, which has just a, a wonderful, huge sound palette. The drum machines here are almost, I won't say purposefully square, <laughs> but it certainly doesn't shy away from that. To me, that kind of pointed out, just like the having the Greek chorus shows, this is artifice, whereas a normal rock and roll sound, even in the 80s, you know, this is like late 80s. So, you know, you're trying to get something sort of natural and I don't know, something with a deep emotional impact, whereas I felt like the sound selection at this stage was simpler by design. Like, let's get something that sounds more like a sine wave, that sounds more like a synth than whatever was the most cutting edge at the time. Was that intentional, like to kind of set the mood, or that's just the technology you were working with? (laughs) I know what you mean in terms of a more kind of, in a way, simplistic approach, less kind of processed. Why they decided to do that at that point Honestly, I don't know. Personally, you know, I didn't listen to the album for a long time. And then when the stuff with ACT happened, when that was being developed and rehearsed and whatever, it caused me to to go back and and approach it again. And honestly, I I found the, the composition of the melodies to be very strong. Maybe they felt like at the time, you know, this is strong enough we can let it more stand on its own. I don't know. I have no idea what the decision-making was. So the new version is probably not going to recreate a 1988 synth aesthetic. It's going to have more natural-sounding modern synths. Originally, Snakefinger was to have played on that, and then he died before the album was completed. And they brought Richard Marriott in, uh, Richard from the Bloodfoot Orchestra, to play trombone on a lot of those parts. And Obviously, nobody could replace Snakefinger, but on the other hand, Richard really brought a fresh perspective to it, and uh, I think those parts have always stood out, and so, you know, they have a 
trombone player that they're going to bring in that will be working with them on this. And, you know, and ultimately they're expanding the band. I think it's going to be a seven-piece group, including Laurie Mott. I think it's going to be a strong show. They're, you know, they're also working with an uh, extremely accomplished video artist, uh, a guy named John Sanborn. John is creating projected backgrounds for the whole thing. And I've seen some early samples of what he's doing. I think it's going to be a genuinely amazing show. Do you feel like with the change in time since 1988 that the sort of sexual politics involved, I mean, it's presented as that this guy's, whatever the age of the twins is supposed to be, he thinks of himself as a pervert of some sort. Like he's describing these as, and certainly when we get into the specifics of how the spread infection in the room and the the thief that took away their purity, like this person does not think very highly of himself. Does the equation change given different attitudes toward managers who might move in on their <laughs> protégés at this point? Or you still think that this is a vivid sort of morally neutral enough picture? The narrative is not telling you either that this guy is bad. In fact, the song after this, like he's separated the twins and yeah, he doesn't get to live with them anymore. He doesn't get to be their constant companion, but they visit him. They reminisce about old times. Like it ends pretty happily. And he's reflecting on the twins are pain and pleasure. And one gives you, you need the pain to be able to measure the pleasure. You need both things, which is a weird outcome to come immediately after this extreme act of violence that was in the middle of him basically trying to molest (laughs) these twins. The ultimate human reality is everybody is completely capable of rationalizing their own behavior. And when you get to the, the coda, when you get to the end, this is exactly what he's doing. On the one hand, maybe he's not exactly proud of what he's done. But on the other hand, he has no problem rationalizing it because ultimately we're all human beings and this is the way it works. You know, I'm somebody that fits into that odd perspective, that reality that we call humanity, that perverse reality that we call humanity. You don't have to look very much further than, you know, our government at this point to see the truth in all that. I like that idea. You know, we were saying musically before, it's just, I'm going to put something out there. It's going to be totally ambiguous. So you know that it's weird. You know that it's unusual, but you're not quite sure whether you're supposed to feel dread or this is a nice part. You know, it's presented in a calm way. There's something about the mood that's ambiguous. And so making the morality of it ambiguous as well, that these are just characters often drawn in a weird, exaggerated way, but with clear human connections to real experience that throw that out there. That's what art is. Let the people decide how to take that in. Absolutely. That's a very good way of looking at it. When they make the network TV version of this, they'll change the ending and uh, he'll be thrown in prison. So there you go. (laughs) And the twins will be reunited and uh, they'll be, you know, on their world tour uh, meeting with the Pope. Well, one can only hope that after all the residents have died, <laughs> that there will be such an interest in making this that it will be bastardized in this way. <laughs> because you have to be pretty famous. You have to, you know, for people to even want to do that to your material and not just <laughs> let it be the, the oddness that it is. So, <laughs> if there's anything that I've learned in life, you never know. Well, why don't we go ahead and introduce the last thing? We're going to just introduce this and say goodbye. We're not going to talk about it in detail, but you had suggested this morning, the song is called If Only, is that right? If Only, right, indeed. And this is by The Residents, but it's for the Hardy Fox tribute album, The The Godfather of Odd, which is just out. Do you want to say anything about this song or why it was done? Or Hardy had 
started doing a series of solo albums, most of which, if not all of which, came out on a very small CD-only label called Klein Gallery in Vienna. Walter, Walter Robotka, who owns, who runs Klein Gallery, he and Hardy were fairly close, and he decided that after Hardy passed away, that he wanted to do a tribute album, so he asked the residents to, to contribute. And I know there are several other people that have contributed. Uh, Fred Frith, I think, has contributed to it. Ronaldo and the Loaf have contributed. I think maybe Blaine Renninger and Stephen Brown from Tuxedo Moon have contributed. I've seen the list. The I Am a Resident album that you referred to earlier, I think there were maybe uh, several people that contributed to that that have also contributed to the Hardy Tribute album. But, um, you know, the residence, to me, it's a more wistful piece than anything else. And that wistfulness, it's, you know, if only. And it's kind of like, you know, if only this had happened or if only that had happened. And I don't think that there's any sense of regret about it. There's just a sense that maybe things could have gone different ways at different times, but ultimately they went the way they were supposed to. Yeah, one of the things I liked about this, just you know, the fact that the residents created their own musical vocabulary that did not overtly have, like, now we're doing the happy song, now we're doing the ballad, that there's no, it's just its own thing, and it's identifiably residents, that then you could use that to actually express regret or express quite a few things and just have it have a unique character. It's not a wistful song. It's not a, <laughs> if only I'd... <laughs> no, 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 not at all. Well, thanks so much for doing this. I really enjoyed the opportunity to to go back through this material and to get as close to a first-person account as anyone is allowed to get of the residents. So this was a great treat. This was years in the the brewing. Thanks for uh, having me on, Mark. It's always interesting to hear what other people think of the residents and how other people interpret their work.
Thanks so much to Homer. I'll say I first reached out to him in the summer of 2013 about potentially involving him somehow in the Partially Examined Life podcast as someone to talk about ugliness, about the residence music regarding ugliness. He ended up not thinking that was a very good fit. So I contacted him again after I had Jonathan Sagal on the Partially Examined Life and then again when I created the new music podcast. And really the reason that I reached out to him again this time was because I had taken a break from looking for guests and instead at leisure revisited some of my wish list. So going forward, yes, I'm still going to feature some newer artists, some folks that were pitched to me by agents, but I'm also just aiming high. I just managed to set up an interview with someone that I own more than five CDs by. I'm not going to reveal names until I actually record the thing because who knows what will happen. And I'm going to keep emailing folks that are potentially out of my league because who knows, they might say yes. Now, if you are intrigued by what you heard today and want an entrance point into the residence, I would recommend the late 90s, early aughts phase. I think that might be the most accessible. So there's one from 1998, Wormwood, Curious Stories from the Bible. I actually saw that tour. And look up the liner notes on that. That one is really well explained. Even if you don't quite know where the music's coming from, I think you'll get it conceptually. It's very interesting. The one after that is called Demons Dance Alone. It's about 9-11. It's got some more traditional melodies in it. Still weird, of course. And maybe the most lush one, shortly after that, Animal Lover 2005. It's kind of a series of vignettes from the point of view of animals. There are a lot of guest singers on it, some folk instruments. So I like that era. But a lot of people, of course, swear by the really early stuff. I think the height of their popularity might have actually been 1980 with the commercial album, and I'm going to leave you here with a track from that. There are actually 40 tracks on that as it was originally released, each exactly one minute long. So here's track 20 from that, The Simple Song. Keep on musicing, everybody. This is Mark Linsenmeyer signing off. Mm-hmm.